0: Let's turn in our Bibles again to Romans chapter 1, Uh, turning to Romans chapter 1 again this morning. We're going to read together from the verse number 15, reading verse 15 of Romans chapter 1. For as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, and neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools." and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to cripple man and to birds and forfeited beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Which well, the just end the reading of God's word there. May it be an encouragement to all of our souls. Well, we have been embarking on this new series of studies uh, on these Sabbath school sessions on the subject of God. is. really looking at the existence and the attributes of God and as I said we're using uh, Stephen Sharnock's work as a help to or outline. We began by considering again the nature of atheism uh, really, atheism is a mark of all who do not name the name of God. Uh, whilst there is absolute atheism, every act of unbelief is an act of atheism, denying who God is, or denying that he is the reward of those that diligently seek him. And so we saw over in Romans chapter 3, there is the quotation in verse 12 Romans 3 from the Psalm 14. Again, in Romans 3, they are all gone out of the way, well, that is the way of truth and righteousness. And in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, There is no God. And so atheism is at the very core of unbelief. If we truly believe in God, then we'll trust in God as our creator and as our redeemer. And so atheism is the profession of the ungodly. But as we've noticed, there is a if you like, there's a paradox in, in to some degree in that whilst many profess atheism, there is no true atheism. Uh, We've noted that atheism is inherently foolish. verse number 22 of chapter 1, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Again, in biblical folly, uh, this foolishness is opposed to true spiritual wisdom. And so, verse number 18 of Romans 1 says that they hold truth in unrighteousness. And that holding there is not a positive term. It is not that they're defending truth or believing truth. Rather, they have truth, but they suppress that truth. There's something they know within themselves which they hold down in a pursuit of unrighteousness. So, you see in verse number 19, it says, "...because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. And so, that is the foundation, really, of this study. We're living in a context of widespread unbelief. And yet, we see that in that unbelief, there is an inherent inbuilt knowledge of God that we should certainly use in our evangelistic pursuits. And so, we've been considering something of the evidences for God's Existence. I hope you understand by now, and you can perhaps rehearse it by now. That when we use the term evidence, we need to do so with some degree of caution. The Bible does not offer a defence for the existence of God, because the existence of God is not up for debate. And so, it's not this case that we're using evidences to try to really convince something of a nature of a philosophical debate and discussion. That's not what we're doing. The evidence we're considering are evidence that God himself has placed into this world. Not greater than God, not outside God, but very much part of who God is. And I was thinking of this again this morning, just in, in kind of sort of final preparation for now. And I think in many ways we could see evidences in this way, as being equivalent to Acts of revelation. Evidences are revelations of God. And that's probably a better way to consider it because God himself has desired to reveal himself in these ways. And so we've talked about these three areas of creation, conscience, and Christ. Well, they are acts of divine revelation. They are acts whereby God has shown himself to this world. And so I would we better have it in that idea in our own minds. What do these revelations do? Well, they do several things, but a couple of things primarily. You think of, again, mankind in two groups. So to the unbeliever, these revelations render them without excuse. As part of the purpose of God, we have that there, of course, in verse number 20 of our text, so that they are without excuse. But that's not the only uh, point of God's revelation of himself. It is also the aspect of true evangelical knowledge. It is that we may know this God, and that knowledge of God is not just in the Bible. It is preeminently in the Bible, and using the Bible we see everything else. But God has revealed himself in creation and in our conscience even to those who do not have the Bible. That's what Romans 2 is all about, that those who don't have the Bible still have a knowledge of God through creation, chapter 1, and as we'll see today, through conscience in Romans, chapter 2. And so these evidences, these acts of revelation are from God. They're not greater than God in that sense. They are God himself, revealing himself, as he's chosen to do so in creation, conscience, and ultimately through Christ Jesus. Jesus. Remember, we saw the issue here, If, again, some who take an evidential school of apologetics, if they uh, take that consistently, they make things outside God as having the supreme authority. And so, maybe archaeology or history or some of these things, and they're looking at things outside of the, the being of God, and they're saying, well, these prove gods. Well, only God himself can prove God. Only God himself can be the final arbiter of God's existence because there is no higher or more reliable authority. And so we've seen these things, and it is, of course, our, uh, our responsibility to persuade men of truth, all truth. Again, we had this discussion regarding apologetics. We understand the depravity of man, that we cannot convince men of truth. We cannot produce faith but we still have a responsibility to seek to persuade men of all truth, fundamentally the gospel, but also of the nature and the being of God in his existence and in his divine attributes. And so I'm not going back over the stuff regarding creation. We thought about origin, organic unity, and ongoing existence. But last time we began to think a little bit about the matter of conscience. So let's take conscience further. Um, we're looking at this in, in really two, in two areas There is, first of all, there is a sense of religion. Now, this is an argument from the universal presence of religion in all cultures at all times. And so the idea here is that men have an inherent sense of there being a supreme being, a first cause of all things. And this is universal sense of religion. Again, what we dealt with it to some degree last time. Let me just read a section from Sharnak. It's an interesting section, and I think it's worthy of our hearing. It's a lengthy quotation, so uh, gird up the loins of your minds, and I'll try to punctuate it at different times, uh, make some comments. He says this, Whatsoever disputes there have been in the world, this of the existence of God was never the subject of contention. Now, again, Sharnak's a Puritan. He's writing in the 17th century. I think we'd have to, if you like, readdress that to some degree in light of events from the 1850s on. There has significantly been in nations and in individuals a great dispute regarding the existence of God. But pre-1600, that was not the case. And so we're getting an insight into human civilization here. And Sharnett continues, all other things have been questioned. What jarrings there were among philosophers about natural things. And to how many parties were they split? With what animosities did they maintain their several judgments? Again, he's looking back to the ancient world, and there was various debates regarding all manner of things. But he says this, But we hear of no solemn controversies about the existence of a supreme being. This never met with considerable contradiction. No nation that had put other things in question would ever suffer this to be disparaged, so much as by a public doubt. We find among the heathen contentions about the nature of God and the number of gods. Some asserted an innumerable multitude of gods. Some affirmed him to be a subject of birth and death. Some affirmed the entire world was God. Others fancied him to be a circle of a bright fire. Others that he was a spirit diffused through the whole world. Again, I'm not getting into all the details of that. He's making the point there were all manner of discussions about the supreme being. But he says this, Yet they unanimously concurred in this, as the judgment of universal reason that there was such a sovereign being. And that's his argument regarding it, it was all manner of debates and discussion as to the nature of this God, but there was no discussion or debate as to whether there was such a supreme being. He continues this way, and those that were skeptical in everything else and asserted that the greatest certainty was that there was nothing certain profess a certainty in this. The question was not whether there was a first cause, but what it was. It is much the same thing as the disputes about the nature and matter of the heavens. the sun and planets, though there be a great diversity of judgments, yet all agree that there are heavens, suns and planets. So all the contentions about men about the nature of God weaken not but rather confirm that there is a God since there never was a public formal debate about his existence. So Sharnock's reviewing the previous centuries, millennia. He's looking back over the years and seeing the universal presence of a statement there was a God in pagan nations as well as in the Judaistic religion. In all of these things, there was a universal consent that there was a God. Now, I say, I think in our day, we have to uh, redefine some of that language in the absolutes. Clearly, there have been nations that have sought to expunge from people's imagination any thought of the being of God. And they sought to exist without there being a supreme being. It's also clear, of course, in the advance of evolutionary thought, that there are many in the academic world who question the being of God. That there is such a thing. But there's never been an answer. There's no answer as to the historical nature of religion in all societies. Nobody's answered that. Where did it come from? Who decided it? And so you we say, well, it was about tradition. Well, tradition starts somewhere. So who's the first person to start the idea of God? Why did they do it? And you go back all through the time and there's no documentation ever to see well, this was, the, this was point zero in humanity's existence, when they said, now is a good time to start the story about God. There's no answer to that. And of course, there's also no answer to the first cause of all things. And so even though people still deny God, this sense of religion is an evidence that there is indeed a God. and that does not define who God is, the nature of God, all those things. And we see that revealed uh, particularly in the Scriptures in the person of Christ Jesus. Okay, are you clear on that? That's... It's a big concept, but I want to uh, leave it there for the last 10 minutes or so. Okay, let's move on then. The second thing in terms of conscience is what I'm going to term a sense of right. This idea of a sense of right. We could term this in terms of morality. There is a recognition of morality. Romans 2 verse 15, turn across there please. Romans 2, verse 15. Now, let's read from verse 14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, as referring to the Old Testament Scriptures, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves. So this is referring uh, to the Old Testament Scriptures, but perhaps even more narrowly to particularly the moral law in the Ten Commandments. But continues, which show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts then meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. This is a biblical definition of the human consciousness. An awareness of conscience within the natural heart of man that exists without the presence of Scripture. But the point of the verse is that man's conscience corresponds to Scripture. That's the point. It's not that it's a vague consciousness. It is that what you see in human consciousness corresponds to the nature of divine revelation. And it's not that they look at Scripture or hear about Scripture and decide that's a good idea. It's inherent within man without any actual knowledge of the law of God as is revealed in the Word of God. It's an inherent sense of right. Now, Something to do, just if we can pause for a moment or two in this regard, Uh, we should see the verse 15 where it says, The work of the law written in their hearts is not the same thing as is described in the New Covenant. I just want to clarify this. I don't want any confusion regarding this matter. So turn back, please, to Jeremiah 31. This, if you like, it's a sideline, okay? It's not part of our defense. Uh, but it's just an important thing to remember when you come to that text in Romans chapter 2 because if you confuse this, you get this idea that men have an inherent ability to keep the law. That's not what it's saying in Romans 2. The New Covenant does give a promise of men being given the ability by God not only to know the law of God, but to do the law of God. It's different. So, Romans or sorry, Jeremiah 31, verse 31 Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And one of the promises, verse 33, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. And again, there are some who see the parallel between Jeremiah 31 and Romans 2 and then lead to the idea that, well, part of human conscious, or the human, the, the human faculty of conscience, is that they therefore have this law in their hearts by God in covenant grace. That's not the case. What's being said in, in Jeremiah 31 is that God is putting in the new heart of individuals the ability to keep the law of God. Now, you see that when you can correspond uh, various other passages. Look at Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32 And the verse number 39, again, this is, again, a parallel reference in terms of these covenantal promises. Jeremiah 31 refers to the heart. Jeremiah 32 says, and I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever. Now, now we know from Romans chapter 3 that the natural man, there is no fear of God. And so here we're seeing a a reference to a a change in man's heart that leads them to to have a proper fear of God for their good. Again, verse number 40. I will put my fear in their hearts. And what's the purpose? That they shall not depart from me. That part of God's working in grace is this new heart whereby we fear God and we live in a life of covenant loyalty in obedience to his law. You know, you go across to Jeremiah 36. or sorry, Ezekiel 36, sorry. Ezekiel 36. Again, this is another one of these cross-references to the, the nature of, of regeneration and the work of God in the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, the verse number 20, the verse number 20, 23, Oh, sorry, I can't read my own writing. So that's 26. 26, verse 25, begin with. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. So you see the, the parallels here. The law and the heart, Jeremiah 31. The new heart to fear God, Jeremiah 32. Now Ezekiel 36. What's the point of it all? I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and here's the point, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And the old covenant people of God, they had the revelation of God's law written on the tables of stone but they continued to rebel against God and depart from God. But now in the New Covenant, the work of regenerating grace is such that each member of the New Covenant has this new heart, and they will not depart from God, but rather obey the law of the Lord. That's what God does in the rebirth. So that is not what you're seeing revealed here in Romans chapter 2. Romans 2 is describing... The state of man by nature. It's not a description of the state of man by grace. This is a natural state of man. They are Gentiles which have not the law of God, but they do the work of the law because the work of the law is written in their hearts. It's not describing those who are converted. That's not the point of Romans chapter 2. Conversion comes from Romans 3 and following. This is a description of man in their natural state, proving that they are inexcusable before God, that they cannot resist the judgment of God, and they cannot resist the judgment of God because they have a conscience upon which is written the law of the Lord. Again, it's not, it's not accidental that the language is written in their hearts with the finger of God. As God wrote the law on the tables with his own finger, so he writes in their hearts the work of the law with his own finger. What we see is the outcome of the law in human society, that what God says in his law is worked out in societies across this world, even for those who do not have the law of God in written form, no Bible, but yet they still do the law of the Lord. Now, how does that? How does that prove God's existence? Okay, it's ten twenty-nine. It's your turn now. How does that prove God's existence? Remember, that's what we're doing here. We're not proving the existence of conscience right now, Christian. Okay, so man's in the image of God, absolutely, yeah, the image of God is there, that's part of it, yep, yeah, Sean? It demonstrates uh, in man, like, a, an accountability, and like, a, like a, uh, a need for, like, submission to um, a higher authority. Okay, so it's accountability, the image is very certainly part of it, yeah, this was part of it, yep, yeah, that... Yeah, we, we can work backwards from that, certainly. We can see from the law that man uh, it works out inside society. We can see God's card, of course. It reveals God's card. It's something more fundamental. Okay, let, let's, let, let's say somebody comes to your home. Okay, and you've a, you've a rule in your home that you cannot wear shoes in the living room carpet, okay? So you've got to come to your house. and So visitors come to the house, and your four-year-old... They they come to the they come the visitors and say, take your shoes off. Okay, take your shoes off. The visitor looks perturbed, but I like to wear my shoes in, in, in my home. Why would I take my shoes off? So why would they? What does what does a three, four year old say? It's the rules. Okay, but what does the presence of rules imply? Okay, punishment. Obedience, yeah, but it's more than that. What does that imply, Paul? Right and wrong. Right and wrong. George, come, so you've got to get this going. Not, not the director of turf. Somebody made the rules, okay? So the, the presence of the rule implies a rule maker. Like a a particular wife or mother, you know, who likes the carpet kept clean. And so there's this, this idea in her mind, well, I'm going to make this rule. And that's the point. The presence of right and wrong implies a rule giver. A higher being, and you've mentioned the words of authority, but there is the implication of a higher being who makes these rules, which we inherently are aware of. Now, you've got to think this through. I'm not suggesting for a second, if you go out to the street right now and say, what do you think of murder, everybody's going to go, it's a good idea. No, they're going to say, no, I, this, this is a bad thing. Well, who says the bad thing? They're not, they're not going to think necessarily that there is a higher authority. Or they may look at a lower higher authority. They may say, well, society doesn't like it. But when you work it through logically, ultimately you get to one point, We say there must be this higher authority. You see, let's think this about, and we'll we'll just sit here for a moment or two. Let's think of this matter. When you think of the sense of right, you're looking at the issue of guilt. Now, here I am not referring to legal guilt. I'm referring to the feeling of feeling guilty. A guilty feeling. It's part of human consciousness that they have this feeling of guilt when they do wrong even when they do wrong in secret and no one knows about it. Now, people deny this, but it's universally true. What do they do? Well, we know from 1 Timothy 4, they can sear the conscience. The idea of searing the conscience is putting a hot iron to the nerve endings of some part of your body, whereby you render the nerve endings insensible. They cannot feel pain and so you use this iron, and you sear the ends, and then you cannot feel the pain in that area. Well, so it is with the human conscience. They sear their conscience so that they get to the point that they don't feel that perception of guilt. But there is always that initial perception of guilt. The adulterer. When they commit adultery, they have those initial pangs of guilt. They know that they've done something wrong. And so well, they, they believe they've wronged their spouse. Yes, but even beyond that, there is a recognition they've wronged a higher being. There is a universal law that exists. We see the Ten Commandments worked out in human society in areas regarding theft, murder, and yes, indeed, in terms of human relationships and adultery. It's this innate sense of being wronged. You see, even if you're searing your own conscience regarding your own guilt. Those who have seared their conscience will still be aware when they are wronged. What's one of the most common words today used in society? It is the word victim. Victim. Being wronged. But who says you've been wronged? Now, of course, you will all be aware that the response of the secular mind is, these things are socially convenient. It just works. The laws that we have in place regarding murder and property and, uh, and human relationships, they are, they are socially convenient. How do you respond to that? Any response to that? So you're arguing with me, now I'm going to tell you this, this is not God, and this is just a matter of social convenience. It works. It helps society function. Paul. Okay, so they're trying to suppress it, yeah. But even practically, what, what would you think? Practicalness, yeah. Undoubtedly, that's the case. Like the, the, this idea of they are making excuses for their own their own actions. But how, what do we? What do you do practically? Well, you, you work them through the hypothetical. Why can't we live without moral absolutes? Let, let's try to live without moral absolutes, and let, let give them an example—a really easy, concrete example. It's one they will grasp immediately. Let's just say that there is no such thing as personal property. Everything belongs to everyone. So what you have is mine. What I have is yours. Of course, you know there are some places I've tried to practice such an idea. It doesn't work. There is within natural man this inherent sense that belongs to me. Get your hands off it. We know that. We don't want people to come into our homes and take what they feel like so that we then go to their homes and take what we feel like. We understand that's not right. I use the word right deliberately. Not only is it not convenient, and it is inconvenient if they, you know, they, they go into my home and take my computer. It's going to make my work very difficult. I get the inconvenience of that. But I also know it's not right. Because we have an inherent sense of the Eighth Commandment written in our consciousness, Thou shalt not steal. And if someone comes and steals my wife, I understand that is not right. It's not right morally. Okay, so you get this inherent sense of human consciousness. Murder, adultery, theft, these are things that are in the human consciousness. Even the fact that society knows that rebellious children are bad. They understand that. Again, they try to suppress that with all manner of diagnosis and all the rest, but they understand that in the school system, if you have children that are rebellious, that isn't good, because even the fifth commandment is written upon the heart of man. Okay, so you get this sense of of guilt. One other thing that we'll finish for today in terms of uh, this sense of right, and that is, The fear of death. Of course, Hebrews 2 refers to men who are all their lifetime subject to bondage through the fear of death. Why? Why do men fear death? The Bible tells us true. We know it experientially. Again, I've, I've, seen, I've seen many, many people die, and there is a common awareness that they are fearful as to what is coming. So why? What is there within man's consciousness that caused them to fear death? Yeah, Mark, sorry. Didn't you? They, might, I mean, they might feel as if they're going to be separated from something here. Okay. That they may not have. I, I mean, you know, absent from the body, is present with the Lord. If you're a believer, you understand that. But you still may have some feelings for something or someone. Mm. That's true. No, that's certainly true. there is that human dimension of, of death and the, the, the leaving behind things. That's true for believers or unbelievers, absolutely, that's true. Yeah. I just think in people's hearts at some level it's appointed to man wants to die and then the judgment and that they feel like there is going to be an accountability. Yeah, I think this this is the key. There is an inherent awareness in man. That they know that judgment's coming. They suppress that, but they know it's coming. I'll show you a verse in a Yeah, Michael. Yeah, there's a fear of ignorance, isn't there? There's, these are So the human dimensions of, of, of fear of death, I think, are true. There's a separation issue. Perhaps you're, you know, you're, you're a young grandparent and you don't leave the grandchildren. There's that separation issue that certainly would, would, would fear death. There's the entering of the unknown. You know that happens in any situation you go into a darkened room you don't know what 's coming around there 's those human dimensions, those really psychological dimensions when it comes to fear of death, but there 's more than that there 's this inherent awareness of judgment that man suppresses. Now how do I know that Romans one thirty two This is describing again those who have no time for god they 've been given over by god they 've been abandoned. They've been, if you like, it says several times, for this cause God gave them up, all these terms of of reprobation and abandonment. But it says, verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but a pleasure in them that do them. There is an inherent knowledge of the judgment of God. that leads men to fear death. And when you put all this together again, how does this have some sense of an evidence or a revelation of the being of God? Well, it is because the presence of law, the presence of guilt, the presence of judgment implies the presence of a lawgiver, an ultimate lawgiver. It is, of course, God. And when Christ comes, we see the being of God revealed in the person of the Savior. So we've got these two areas so far, the area of creation and the area of conscience. Now, there's two lines of divine revelation that give evidence of the being of our great and holy God. I won't go any further today. Any final comments or questions, we'll leave it there for now. Yeah, Dan. Yeah, that's true. So everyone does it right in his own eyes. You know what's interesting in this in terms of social commentary? You have people doing what's right in their own eyes. This if you like there's this minority within society who are determined to do the worst things they can possibly do, and it's a minority. Do you know what the majority think? Who have no time for God and no time for Christ and will not be in church today? The majority of society think that's wrong. They have a human consciousness that they are aware that is wrong. It's one of the features, and people deny it. And so you get to the point, well, how many murders does someone have to do before they're declared to be wrong? Oh, you know, this person's really wicked. They've committed five murders or six murders. No, we all understand. It's one. One's enough. And yes, again, there are contradictions. The fall has brought all manner of contradictions in human society. But still, in a majority who do have, they have no time for Christ or church, they will still stand before you and say, That is wrong. And you say, Who says so? Who says so? And the, the only answer that's consistent in that is that there is a divine supreme being who says so. Well, let's pray to that supreme being or God in heaven, seek his face for his blessing. We praise His name that not only has He shown Himself in creation and consciousness, but in Christ, and so we know Him to be a God of loving kindness and mercy. He's changed our hearts. He's granted us the law in our hearts to do His will, and let's praise His name again today. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time in the Word. Bless it to our understanding. Help us to grow in our convictions regarding the perfection of Your being, and as we see These days when mankind is so confused, help us, O Lord, to show them that they're suppressing truth, they're holding down truth, and rather Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. May we make Christ known, and may sinners run to him and be gloriously saved. Bless our time of worship this day, in Christ's name. Amen.